Hello everyone, I am Giulio Prisco and this is the Turin Church podcast. I am recovering from the loss of my sweet little dog Ricky and I'm not in the mood to write or speak much. But in December 2016, after losing my other sweet little dog Sasha, I was interviewed by Bob Wright, the author of many books including The Evolution of God, in uh, 2009, and Why Buddhism is True, in 2017, uh, Ricky was in my lap during the interview. We discussed my hope to be with Sasha again by means of natural processes of future science, that is, the possibility of technological resurrection, or or a combination of the two, or uh, even stranger things. I elaborated on this in my book, uh, Tales, of the Turing Church, published in 2020, but what I said in this interview is close to what I wrote in the book and close to what I think now. Bob graciously gave me permission to share the audio of the interview, which was titled Transhumanism as a Religion. So here you go, the interview starts in a few seconds. I dedicate this episode of the Turing Church podcast to the memory of my sweet little dogs Sasha and Ricky and uh, to my hope to be with them again. Hope is the most important thing in the world. Okay, here is the 2016 interview with Bob and uh, the video is on Bob's uh, website. You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Julio. Hi, Bob. How are you? Great. How are you? Uh, I'm not too bad. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show. You are Julio Prisco. You are trained um, as a computer scientist and a physicist and your former uh, senior manager in the European Space Administration. More important for our purposes, you uh, are a transhumanist. And we're going to talk about uh, what that means and what your particular take on transhumanism is because you have what you think of as a, as a spiritual uh, kind of version of transhumanism. And, and in fact, you're, you're kind of in the process of organizing uh, some people, some discussion around, uh, around a spiritual interpretation of that. You've got, you've got uh, something called the Turing Church, a kind of discussion, discussion group, not a church in the conventional sense. Before we get started, I want to uh, express my condolences, and, and very sincerely, because I have dogs, and uh, I know how much you can love them, and I know your dog passed away within the last yes. uh, couple of days, I, and, and I know you're willing to, later in the conversation, talk about how your worldview helps console you, or could help console you, in a situation like this, when you're not conventionally religious, you don't think your dog is in heaven or something, uh, but sometimes they do. Sometimes you do. Okay. Well, we'll get to uh, that too. Sometimes, uh, sometimes, and in some sense, uh, that uh, does not necessarily coincide with the traditional sense given to the word heaven. Okay. I so, believe that my dog is somewhere, somehow. Okay. So let's we will talk about this because it's fascinating. Uh, let's start by talking about transhumanism in the more generic sense. I mean, one thing that's interesting to me is, you know, some trans... And I guess you might loosely define transhumanists as people who are 
you know, very enthusiastic about the way technologies are transforming what it means to be human and might so transform that in the future that we will in some sense be a different species. I mean, you know, using various kinds of technologies, brain implants, I guess, pharmaceuticals, whatever. Um, uh, And what's interesting to me is, you know, transhumanists, they tend to be very technically minded, scientifically minded people. And they sometimes kind of get accused of being religious. You know, people say, look, transhumanism, you can call it what you want, but it's just another religion. Now, you are kind of taking that and running with it. You're saying, yes, for me, transhumanism is a religion. And, and, and this involves, I think, some, uh, some beliefs or hopes you have about future technologies that maybe not all transhumanists share, but, but in any event, that's this is interesting to me. Now, now, would you agree with my characterization so far? In other words, there are transhumanists who who aren't very religious, at least explicitly. Well, well actually, why don't we start with with, with the way I, I characterize transhumanism to begin with? Is it right as far as it goes? Are people very enthusiastic about what technologies are, how technologies are transforming what it means to be human, and will transform that even more dramatically in the future? Uh, being a enthusiastic about technology and uh, uh, optimistic about uh, very visionary technology developments is one of the features that uh, I guess most uh, transhumanists have in common. Now, I have to mention that there are uh, a few thousand self-identified transhumanists in the world. And I guess if you ask them all the question, what is transhumanism? you would get uh, thousands of uh, different answers. Now, I like uh, to define uh, transhumanism in a very generic and very simple way. Uh, That is, uh, uh, transhumanism is the idea that uh, radically modifying the human condition through advanced technology is uh, one a doable to a good. It's something that can be done and it's something that should be done. And uh, whenever I give uh, an introductory talk about transhumanism, I always use a very simple example, which is this one. Without eyeglasses, I don't see very well. I cannot read uh, the text on the screen. Mm -hmm. And that's a limitation built in uh, the human nature is a fact of life that when uh, we get older than 50 years, our eyes uh, start not working too well. I see that it's not your case, like you. Actually, I'm wearing contact uh, lenses, so okay. it is my case. <laughs> even, even, better, even better example. Mm-hmm. But if I just put this on, which is a simple technological implement, then I see very well, I can write, I can uh, read, I can uh, do all things that uh, a few centuries ago, people in my conditions could not have done. Mm -hmm. So this is a very simple example of technology, which, uh, although it was invented centuries ago, it is transhumanist technology because it permits uh, overcoming some uh, important human limitation. And in this sense, uh, the road from uh, eyeglasses to mind uploading is uh, very long, of course, yes. in terms of technology development. And by mind uploading, you mean uh, like taking the contents of my brain and putting them in a place such that if I die, I still in some sense exist? 
Exactly. Uh-huh. And uh, so this is a very futuristic technology that has not has not been achieved yet, and I think uh, will remain uh, uh, unachieved for uh, still some uh, uh, decades at least. I mean, uh, there is continuity between eyeglasses and mind uploading. Right. Because even if uh, the second technology is much harder than the first, the concept is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. It's using technology to modify the human condition in a way which is good. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the basic definition of transhumanism. Now, the definition is, of course, generic enough to leave a lot of room for interpretation. And, of course, uh, transhumanists take uh, advantage of uh, the of uh, this elbow uh, room and formulate a lot of different formulations and interpretations of transhumanism. On what I just said, I think all transhumanists would agree, and all transhumanists are uh, enthusiastic about uh, emerging technologies. Mm-hmm. And, and and is. Is mind mind uploading is a big one for transhumanists pretty broadly, I gather. And are there are there other whole categories of technology that tend to get brought up? I mean, for example, genetic engineering is an obvious one, right? I mean, you. It is. Uh, so that that's the easiest way to imagine us becoming pretty literally a, a different species, maybe. Um, pharmaceuticals, strictly speaking, right? I mean, if you take like so-called smart drugs or whatever. Those are, I guess, those are part of the picture, right? They are, um, and of course, uh, I wish all the best to those who are developing these technologies. It's not what I myself focus on, mm-hmm. because uh, also, I mean, uh, I am enthusiastic about biological life extension, genetic engineering, mm-hmm. all this technology that uh, promise to improve the biology mm-hmm. of human beings, I think is a very important thing. But first, I don't think uh, radical life extension will be developed uh, anytime soon. I'm sorry to hear that. My friend Aubrey de Grey thinks that the first person who will live to be a thousand years old is already born. Yeah, Aubrey de Grey, he's uh, actually been on uh, our, our sister website, Blogging Heads TV, so people yeah. can... Search for that. He, he, yes, he is an enthusiast. I mean, my goal yeah. would be to. I mean, I do wish him all the best, but I'm quite skeptical of his claims. I mean, it will yeah. happen sooner or later. Well, I but guess you know, biology has an expiration date. Right. That seems to that's be how. That's how biology works. Right. I mean, some evolutionary biologists would say that yeah, you reach a pretty fun. Uh, there are different theories in evolutionary biology actually about why aging happens, but. Uh, uh, the the upshot of a common theory is that you're going to hit a pretty fundamental limit around 110 years of age. Uh, so, but 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 okay. So that's so that that hope offers me no immediate relief. I mean, I, I suppose in theory, uh, if I could live to the point where life expectancy is growing by more than one year per year, then I would be okay. But I don't I don't think that's going to happen. The uh, so so other hopes are like. Well, there's there's cryonics, right? Freezing me, freezing uh, my head. I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, the, you know, maybe we should say here that that you actually 
think that there may be hope for me even if I die, hope for my immortality, even if I die without having my body frozen and without having my mind uploaded because you, I gather, have been influenced by a group of Russian thinkers called Cosmists. And interestingly, you know, we've actually had a couple of dialogues about Cosmists uh, on our uh, we- on our website that people can search for if they search for that word. Um, and th- one interesting, idea, very interesting idea emerged from Cosmism that it would be possible in principle, maybe someday, to in a sense resurrect everyone. In other words, not just to upload the minds of people who exist now and do it before they die so that they can have immortality, if we can figure out how to do that, but actually go back and somehow recreate the contents of past minds. The idea, the premise here being that all that matters is the data, the physical information in your brain. That's your identity. And if you can go back and recreate that for for people who are no longer alive, you can resurrect everyone. And it was a kind of a a part of this strand of cosmos thinking, I think, that that's what you should strive for. I mean, that's the just thing. Everyone should be allowed to live forever, to, to be resurrected, right? I think so. And, uh, you know, uh, even uh, before uh, trying uh, to give uh, philosophical or even scientific justifications for this idea, one important point I want to make is that uh, for people, uh, people like you and I. You were also born in 57 like me. As it happens, we were born in the same year, right. Right, Right. so we are uh, both pushing 60. You might say. And uh, that's uh, the only thing that we can uh, realistically hope for. The thing is that someone who is now 15 years old, I mean, someone who can expect to live until the end of the century, I think uh, he or she has some good uh, chances to live in a world where uh, mind uploading is a reality. I expect that uh, by the end of the century, we will list, uh, we could see at least uh, the first uh, research implementations of mind uploading. Of course, uh, the first uh, in the first few years, uh, not everything will work. The first uh, iterations of the technology will be uh, buggy. There will be tragedies, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I were 15 years old, with uh, the scientific knowledge that I have now, I would uh, hope, in mind uploading, to extend my life indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Because I could see the possibility of living until the end of the century, which is where, uh, more or less, uh, I situate uh, this kind of development. But the thing is that I'm not 15. I will be, I'll be 60 next year. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, if you ask me, is there any chance uh, that mind uploading technology is developed uh, within my lifetime? Unfortunately, I have to ask, I think there is no chance in how. I would like to be wrong. I would really like to be wrong. And I really hope that some of my friends who work in the mind uploading field, uh, Randall Kuhne, uh, the new company of uh, Brian Johnson, it's called Kernel. How do you spell that, that company? K- Kernel. K? K-E-R? 
E R N E L. I'll send you. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll send you the link. But is so that, there's actually just a company. That's an example of a ongoing research on mind uploading. So there's actually a company that's working on mind uploading. I mean, what form does the research take? It just seems there is more like, than one. There is more than one. Is what I'm talking about. What what what, I, what form does the research take? It seems like such a distant prospect, but uh, that I wouldn't know what to start researching. Well, you know, the operational implementation is very distant. At this moment, uh, uh, they can demonstrate, uh, for example, that uh, some way of uh, storing a uh, living uh, brain can preserve all the fine details of uh, neural mm, okay. connections upon which your personality depends. I see. So... Uh, there are things going in research labs which let you be quite optimistic about the long-term development of this technology. So they're trying but right now... Course, I mean, uh, to make it operational right. for human beings uh, is a huge uh, challenge that will take, uh, I'm afraid, uh, uh, decades to solve. But right now they're trying to record the contents of brains as precisely as possible, knowing that right now they're not recording them precisely enough, but they're trying to do it more and more precisely? Uh, yes, but I'm not. Uh, I wouldn't say that they are trying to record uh, brains yet. They are uh, trying uh, to run experiments to offer uh, suggestive evidence for the fact that sometimes in the future it will be possible to record a brain. But we are not at the stage of trying to record a brain yet, not even for very small animals. So are you are you not at all tempted by the cryonics uh, option actually being frozen? Uh, I am still a life member of the Cryonics Institute. Uh, I used to have a contract for cryonic suspension funded with life insurance. Then uh, since uh, I'm one of those people who move a lot, um, I had a life insurance that automatically expired when I moved from one country to another. And uh, at that point, uh, I mean, I didn't renew that insurance. That doesn't mean that uh, I do not want to be frozen after I die. It means that I don't have solid arrangements okay. for being frozen in place yet. Uh, I may do that in the future or I may not. Okay. So the hope then uh, would be with this, uh, well, w you might say retroactive mind uploading. In other words, that some yeah, future uh, generation can kind of reconstruct you in a sense. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but that's, a, uh, that's exactly how I say. Uh, I speak of uploading to the future, which mm -hmm. means exactly the same thing. It means a hypothetical future, very high technology, able to reach back into the past read the content, read all the information contained in a human uh, brain and uh, replicate it to some kind of computing system that may exist at that time. Yeah. They get to uh, read a brain from the past mm -hmm. and to re-instantiate the brain in the future. As a matter of fact, there is a very good science fiction novel that I always recommend about exactly this uh, technology. It's a novel uh, written by Stephen Baxter on a synopsis of Sir Arthur C. Clarke, and the novel is called The Light of Other Days. Mm -hmm. I do recommend it to everyone, because uh, 
is an example of technology that we can imagine right now. We cannot do it, but we can imagine it. That uh, if uh, the universe works uh, in the way that uh, these two science fiction writers think, would uh, one day permit uh, doing exactly that. Okay. To resurrect uh, people who died long ago by uploading them to the future. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine how. Of course, one, one thing people, you can imagine is, I mean, you know, people talk about, like, uh, resurrecting dinosaurs, and I don't know how much progress has been made here, but that it's starting to seem, I mean, there, has there been any action? You, you know, in that case, what you'd be doing is you would find some DNA from long ago, and you would, you know, inject it into maybe the egg of a of, of some related existing species. I don't know how exactly you'd do it, but in any event, in any of those scenarios... You'd have to run people through the life cycle to get to a mature, you, you know, brain. And, of course, they wouldn't have the same life experiences exactly. that they had had. So that's not what you're talking about, right? So no. that wouldn't lead the, to the right. person that is you. No. In fact, uh, uh, to use, I mean, uh, these would be cloning technology. As a matter of fact, we could uh, begin a research project to recreate dinosaurs right now. Mm -hmm. We know how to do it. It would be ethically challenging, it would cost a lot of money, but it's something we could start to do right now. As a matter of fact, uh, I mean, uh, the film uh, Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park is exactly about that. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same thing. Now, uh, to use uh, again, uh, a terminology that sounds like religion, recreating a dinosaur would be more like reincarnation than like resurrection because all the memories would be lost. And all things that this dinosaur has seen in his life would not uh, be carried over to the next life. Now, a dinosaur, you could say, well, okay, but all dinosaurs do the same thing, so it doesn't matter very much. Perhaps that's the point. But that doesn't apply to us. I mean, uh, my life experience is very different from your life experience. And if uh, we get uh, re-instantiated in the future, I want to keep things that way. I, mean, I want to remember the things that I remember now. I want to continue loving the people that I love now. You see what I mean? Right. So that, well, there is a lot of discussion in uh, uh, spiritual circles between uh, people coming from a Western tradition and people coming from an Eastern tradition about uh, the relative uh, merits of uh, the idea of resurrection and reincarnation. But these are two very different things. But, and I gather it's it's just not very easy to conceptualize like what the technique would be. I mean, in the case of of of, of, of dinosaurs, of, 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 you know, that we just mentioned, you, you kind of imagine, okay, you understand how this would work. In the case of what you're calling resurrection, as opposed to reincarnation, um, you know, really restoring the contents of someone's mind as it had developed through their life cycle, someone who lived long ago, I assume the technique, you, we just don't have a very clear idea of how you would reach back in the past and get that information, right? Uh, not at all, but we can imagine something that would work. I mean, depending on whether some ideas of how the universe works are correct or not, 
then we can imagine several different scenarios. But I think the best thing that I can do is to give you exactly the story that uh, Stephen Baxter and Arthur Clarke are telling in the novel The Light of Other Days. Now, the thing is that it's a novel that begins uh, sort of, I mean, it could begin in a couple of decades from now. There is very high technology in the world, but not so much higher than what we have right now. Now, at some point, they make a discovery. And the discovery is that space, the fabric of space and time, is full of micro uh, wormholes. I mean, you know what a wormhole is. Is an, uh, We could define a wormhole as an extra-dimensional conduit between one point and the faraway point. It's a theoretical uh, construct from physics that I, whose existence, I gather, has not been confirmed, but it could, in theory, exist? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, uh, um, the existence of wormhole is confirmed between uh, they are a mathematical consequence of Einstein's uh, theory of general relativity. Okay. So that, I mean, uh, nobody really doubts too much the existence of wormholes. But they and, figured in, in, uh, the uh, movie, uh, in the movie Interstellar, where I think wormholes figured, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. Okay. In fact, uh, the scientist... Uh, Kip Thorne, who is an important uh, physicist and uh, researcher in general relativity, was uh, an advisor to Nolan for Interstellar, and he also wrote a very good book called The Physics of Interstellar. That's also a book that I recommend. Anyway, uh, I would need a sheet of paper to illustrate the concept of okay. wormhole. Okay, well, I mean, we don't, we suppose don't have that to... space is flat. Huh? Yeah. Uh, if you bend space like this, uh, if you have two points uh, right. that are far away. There are ways to bend the space and to put the two points together. So that, I mean, information can go from one to the other point without being limited from the speed of light. Anyway, what the scientists discover in the novel is that uh, the space is full of wormhole. So uh, between every pixel of space-time and every other pixel of space-time, regardless of distance in space and regardless of distance in time, there are wormhole connections. Mm -hmm. And you can use these wormhole connections to read in one of the two places what is happening or happened in the past mm -hmm. in the other place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the novel goes through a lot of interesting uh, developments of this technology. For example, they can be used for spying and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the very last, the technology is actually used to resurrect the dead from the past. Now, we do not know enough physics to determine whether uh, this specific technique is uh, realistic or not. We just do not know enough. But it's uh, kind of uh, believable in view of the physics that we already understand. Whether it can actually be done or not depends on physics that we do not yet understand. Things may be much more difficult than that. But, uh, I mean, sooner or later, uh, we are a very imaginative uh, species. I think sooner or later, if uh, is there any way to do it, we will find out how to do it.
Mm-hmm. Don't ask me how, because uh, I think uh, uh, not only we don't know enough uh, physics to write down a detailed uh, blueprint of resurrection technology, but we don't even know enough physics to begin imagining how these technologies might work. Mm-hmm. But kind of give uh, time uh, to time. The universe is still a young place. We will achieve resurrection technologies sometime in the future. It may be that some alien civilizations out there have uh, already achieved resurrection technology. And, and it's, it, I, I do think it's, it's accurate to say that a fairly conventional view emerging from modern physics is that time is just another dimension like space and that in principle... There's no reason to think one couldn't travel backwards in time, even though paradoxes ensue, famous paradoxes, like what if you go back and change something. But, uh, you know, physicists have a more, uh, a less commonsensical notion of what time is than, than the rest of us, I think. And, 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 and in some ways, I think that that makes it at least conceivable that one could retrieve information from the past. Now, is this kind of scenario part of what gives you consolation in the wake of the death of your dog? The, the, the idea that in some sense, the information that your dog embodied is in some sense there somewhere that is in principle retrievable? Is that the idea? Uh, that is uh, not the whole idea, but certainly part of the idea. Now, let me go back to a few of the things that you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, uh, reading information from the past is not uh, time uh, travel and does not give rise to logical paradoxes. Okay. Uh, because, you know, it just doesn't. You are not changing anything. Uh, even uh, if you were to change anything, because, you know, you could see, well, uh, I cannot read information without interacting with something, so I cannot read information from the past without physically changing the past. That's also a very uh, sensible objection. But, well, you know, it really does depend on how the universe works. If you think of some uh, interpretation of quantum physics, like for example Averett's uh, many world interpretation, there there are no logical paradoxes in time uh, travel, because you can change the past, but you would not be changing the same timeline where you come from. You would be changing a separate uh, timeline. Mm-hmm. So that, um, I mean, I'm not... Uh, affirming that, but I'm just saying that in modern physics we can conceive of several ways to avoid the, the grandfather paradox in okay. time travel, and uh, that's one point. Another point, when you say that well, all uh, the information is still out there. Mm, my mother died... Uh, 15 years ago, coincidentally, my mother died on exactly the same day, December 11, as my dog. Mm. My wife and I, we like to think that uh, my mother came to take the dog with her. 
means that the information about my mother is uh, definitely out there. Because uh, mm, I mean, that's what the laws of physics say. Physics uh, seems to say that information is not destroyed. Uh, and one way of saying that, I think, is that the universe is in principle reversible. It's like a reversible computer. You could you could go back, you could run it backwards in in a certain sense. In other words, from the information we have now, you could reconstruct all past states in principle. Right. You know. Well, this is very much an open question. There are some physicists who think that the universe is deterministic, and there are some other physicists who think that the universe is not, and the. Key issue is uh, in quantum physics the whether the collapse of the wave function happens or not. Uh, I mean, do you want to go into more technical details and uh, explain? Well, what I'm, I'm, I'm curious about which just which uh, which is which. In other words, if the quantum wave function does collapse, what it, which it seems to do when you measure things. Does that imply that the universe is reversible or isn't reversible? Uh, that would imply that the universe is not reversible. Not it's reversible. not uh, uh, deterministic. The future right. cannot be computed from the past. Because the collapsing has a certain random element. In other words... Yeah, it, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a discontinuous thing. It's not right. a smooth mathematical evolution. Okay. You, uh, but you know, uh, these things that were first... Uh, mathematically studied by John von Neumann in a book that came out in 1932. Now it's almost uh, it's, uh, how long? 85 years after uh, the publication of von Neumann's Foundation of Quantum Mechanics, and physicists still do not agree on whether the collapse of the wave function happens or not. It's uh, very much an open question of interpretation. The thing is that if the wave function does collapse, then the universe does lose information. I mean, there is a lot of information now. At some point, uh, much of that information is uh, thrown away. Mm -hmm. And only a little part of the information is retained. Things that uh, some scientists think that uh, the collapse of the wave function is not fundamental. It's just an artifact of how we see and do things. So let me, can I just interrupt? I mean, we don't want to get sure. too far into this, but I assume one, I mean, as I said, the wave function seems to collapse. You know, when we measure something, yes. we get a precise answer, even though according to quantum physics, the answer was not precise until we measured it in some yes. sense, or at least according to some interpretation of quantum physics. I assume one alternative to thinking that the wave function has actually collapsed is the many worlds interpretation, where is, is that one of the alternatives where, like, okay, it, what happened when I measured it, I, in my world, <laughs> this is my reality, but there are other realities that were represented by other parts of the wave function that now exist in other things, <laughs> in other dimensions or whatever, right? I mean, yeah. so many worlds is one alternative to the wave collapsing, is that right? But there are other inter alternatives? Uh, yes, the many worlds interpretation is one of the interpretation of quantum physics in which the collapse of the wave function does not happen. Uh -huh. But uh, it's not the only interpretation of quantum physics that uh, avoids uh, the collapse. Now, you know, they are uh, doing a lot of... Uh, the coherence uh, theory studies, and uh, I mean, that means that uh, I mean, the, 
uh, even if uh, the wave function does not really collapse, uh, it does uh, manage to give you an extremely good impression that it has collapsed indeed, <laughs> that kind of things. But the information is not lost, but kind of scattered uh, into the environment until it becomes uh, strongly mixed up with all the rest of the universe. Things that Now, if uh, something like that is correct, and again, uh, I mean, you can ask uh, uh, many physicists and some people will uh, uh, answer you, yes, that's correct. Some others will tell you, no, it's wrong. I'm just telling you, we do not know. I would like very much to know all these things, but it's still on the table for discussion. But if such an interpretation is correct, if the information is never lost, I mean, they discuss these things a lot in the context of uh, uh, evaporation of uh, black holes and these very much exotic things. If the information is not lost, then the information is still there, by definition. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is that going to be easy to read that information? Not at all. <laughs> to be at, I mean, an extremely huge challenge, so huge that we could not even begin to imagine uh, how to begin thinking of a solution right now is just uh, just beyond us. We don't uh, play in that league yet. We will not perhaps play in that league for thousands of years. We will not perhaps play in that league for millions of years. But can you really put any hard limits on what a civilization, which is millions or billions of years more advanced than us can do? So this is interesting because it means that, you know, the hope that you could someday reach into the past and resurrect some being that existed then, it's not just a vague hope. I mean, it, it, it is an in-principle implication of some fairly mainstream sci scientific conceptions of how the universe works. It, it kind of, right, I mean... It depends on which physicists are right, but we're talking about, you know, and you're kind of putting your money on certain physicists, but they're serious physicists, right? I mean, this is, it, 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 is, it is in principle an implication of mainstream ideas in physics that, that the past is retrieval. It is a possible implication. Mm -hmm. mm. How realistic, I don't know. Now, of course, uh, you have been running this... Uh, show for many years and you have interviewed uh, people with uh, the kind of uh, very wild, wild ideas like me and you know what is the reactions of many people to these talks. After this uh, talk goes online there will be people uh, saying that I am a lunatic, that I am a Rank, I want to yeah, say maybe we should forward. ask them to I just want to convert people to a religion. Things that they will say that I don't know anything about physics, of course. Now, as a matter of fact, I do have a PhD in theoretical physics, and I think I do know much more physics than the people who say that uh, I don't. But the thing is that you know, it's uh, unavoidable to have uh, this kind of very strong reaction because uh, you know, we're uh, talking about uh, we're talking also about uh, religion here. And you know that uh, uh, these days uh, militant a new atheism is also religion. Mm -hmm. In the sense that it is uh, 
promoted without um, I mean uh, without any logical argument just you know I'm saying things that sound like religion that means I'm wrong and that means I'm a crank I'm sorry it doesn't work right. that way you know I, I just have to pause here and share your frustration I mean because I I actually just published something uh, online it's not the kind of thing you do but it was it was an argument we won't get into it I published it in the New York Times we won't get into it but it was about the argument that evolution could have a purpose without there being any spooky forces involved. It would still be a material system, but you can imagine various uh, uh, cases about how life started that would amount to believing that in some sense evolution had a purpose. And I, and I talked about, well, there are also these simulation theories, and I know you've, you've entertained these and so on. But anyway, so there is a, a kind of a well-known new atheist named Jerry Coyne, who posted this thing about it, uh, and just he's done this to me in the past, demonstrated the most stunning incomprehension of what I had actually said. You know, it's just, it's just mind-blowing. It, and, and, you know, when you say the new atheism is a religion, I, I want to emphasize, different new atheists are different. And I don't want to generalize about them, but some of them certainly exhibit the thing they most criticize about religion, which is just your your beliefs being formed by something other than reason. It's 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 amazing. And I'll stop my little rant. I just want to say I share your question. Let's not let's not stop for one more minute because I want to make an analogy. Things that you had this political election in the U.S. right now, and you know the kind of debate. Between preconceived ideas on one side and preconceived ideas on the other side, without even bothering to try understanding what the others are actually saying, I mean that uh, really drives you into despair. The thing is that it seems that uh, reason and rational arguments don't have any place uh, in that. Now, if that happens in uh, national and in international politics, then we shouldn't be surprised. Then it does happen in discussions about science, uh, philosophy and uh, theology as well. That's uh, just how the world works. I do prefer uh, not uh, to worry too much about uh, the bad things that they say about me or about you. Mm, I do prefer to continue my discussions with uh, people I can talk to. Well, you know, you, you, one hopes, <laughs> maybe, one, maybe this is not unrelated to what we've been talking about, because one hopes for eventual vindication. I mean, the frustrating thing is that, like, there seems to be almost no one out there who, like, will read Jerry Coyne's blog who will actually go examine the argument he's referring to and apply reason to it. But I suppose one could hope, just as one could hope that one may someday be resurrected, one can hope that someday there will be a civilization that bothers to go through past, through all past arguments and, 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 and appraise the merit, the actual merits. But maybe, maybe that's my version of a, a transhumanist hope. Am I too optimistic, you think? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, Okay. now back to your form of optimism. So you said that uh, you're... 
the consolation you get about your dog isn't just about the sense that the idea that in some sense the information uh, your dog represented is out there and can be retrieved. It wasn't it wasn't just that. Is there anything more you want to say about that? Uh, yes, I think I do. Mm, well, first, uh, uh, what you said is correct. If the information is still out there and uh, there are many ways uh, compatible with uh, what we know about uh, physics in which uh, the statement that the information is still out there makes a lot of sense. Not just one way, but many ways. Okay, if the information is out there, it can, in principle, be retrieved. If it can be retrieved in principle, then I am quite confident that, uh, I mean, sometime in the future, in a thousand years, million years, it doesn't matter, it will be instantaneous to us, then uh, someone will resurrect me, perhaps, I hope so. I mean, it's like a chain. Uh, somebody will resurrect, somebody who wants to resurrect me, then I will get resurrected, oh. then I will resurrect all my families and all my friends and also my dog, and so that I will hold my dog again. I like that. So my daughters would that resurrect is, me, presumably, after their... Yeah, okay, I get it. Uh, I mean, yes, somebody who has yes, an interest in me would resurrect yeah, me. Okay, I guess. glad I, I have kids. Mm, that's one possible ways in which it could happen. Uh, now, until a few years ago, this was uh, kind of uh, the only scenario that I considered. I think I should say that I do not come from a religious background. My family was not very religious. We didn't go to church. Uh, Sometimes we did just as a social convention, but uh, we didn't uh, really care about that very much. I used to call myself an agnostic, and I think uh, I was uh, an effective uh, atheist until adulthood. Religion is something that I discovered intellectually. I mean, I don't have... Uh, uh, it was not uh, burnt into my heart when I was a child. It was discovered, I kind of discovered it with uh, my brain when I was an adult. So, however, I started from a, with a fairly standard uh, transhumanist point of view. I mean, uh, technology is beautiful and technology is good and uh, everything can happen and the universe is a very big place. So. Sometimes in the future we will be able to resurrect uh, the dead exactly like uh, Nikolai Fyodorov said. He, he, is, the co he is the cosmist uh, yes. that we referred to cosmism, yes. the Russian yes. cosmism earlier. So it uh, was uh, mm, the only direction that I was uh, pursuing until some time ago. Then I started uh, reading a lot about uh, theology, studying um, uh, uh, the history of the religions. I, I, I also read your very excellent book, The Evolution of God, by oh, the way. Thank you. Uh, so I be began to... Uh, now, how to say that without saying it bad? I began to see more and more... Uh, parallels 
between my developing ideas and the concept that uh, had already been formulated since hundreds of years in the context of uh, most uh, religions that I'm familiar with. And what is the parallel? And the parallel is that, you know, mm, let me start uh, with one of the religions that you do not cover in your book, which is uh, uh, Mormonism, mm -hmm. which uh, is usually considered as a slightly different version of Christianity, while, as a matter of fact, it is a quite different thing. I mean, it's compatible with Christianity, but it goes beyond Christianity by introducing several uh, concepts that is very difficult to find in mainstream Christianity, like the concept that uh, God was once like man, and uh, man can one day become like God. The concept that uh, God does not intervene in the universe by supernatural means, but uh, just uh, exploits the possibility that are already open in how the laws of uh, a nature works. And that is a very interesting philosophy, completely compatible with transhumanism. In fact, the uh, oldest uh, organizations dedicated to promoting uh, studies at the intersection between uh, science and religion is the Mormon Transhumanist Association. <coughs> Are you familiar with it? No, I've heard about it just through looking it's at your uh, own writings, but I, I'm not. It's a, yeah, it's a very good organization. I will put you in contact with the main organizers if you want to interview them in one of the next episodes. I have been a member of the Mormon Transhumanist Association since... Uh, I became uh, first acquainted with them in 2006. Even, even, though, you're asked, not, even though you're not really a Mormon? Uh, even if I'm not really a Mormon. And by, by the way, when, uh, I didn't even know what a Mormon was. I have the very Hollywood concept of Mormonism, but I have never met a Mormon in my life. Uh, when I was executive director of the World Transhumanist Association in 2006, then... Uh, the Mormon transhumanists applied uh, for uh, affiliation with the World Transhumanist Association. And I was very much intrigued. Well, Mormon Transhumanist Association, what, uh, what is that? So I started reading about uh, their uh, interpretation of Mormonism and transhumanism. And I was very surprised to find a lot of very strong similarities between their ideas and my own interpretation of transhumanism, so that um, at the end I became uh, a member and uh, I go very frequently once a year to Salt Lake City to participate in the annual conference of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. I didn't go last year, but I hope to go next year. Okay, maybe... It's can can I... Far, yeah. Sure. Uh, well, can I just... Uh, maybe... Uh it would be illuminating to contrast some of your more religious uh, interpretations of transhumanism with the views of people who would call themselves transhumanists, but not 
are not so religious uh, in, in your sense of the term. I mean, you know, whether this is something you have in common with the Mormons or not, or, or not something that 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 uh, you would believe or would be a uh, principle of yours that that might not be held by transhumanists who might be thought of as more secular. What's an example of that? Uh, I think uh, <coughs> most of those who identify themselves as uh, transhumanists, I guess they would not. Uh, really agree very much with anything that I'm saying here. <laughs> As you say, there is a quite uh, kind of a knee-jerk reaction whenever they hear uh, something that sounds too much like religion. So resurrection, for example, is not a very widely shared hope among transhumanists, and that's an example of something that sounds too religious to them? Yes. Okay. Mm, we do I mean, there are uh, a lot of transhumanists who do like to talk about these things, like to contemplate these ideas. But uh, I think I can safely say that most uh, transhumanists have a knee-jerk reaction as soon as they hear something that sounds like religion. I think that has a psychological explanation, depending on, you know, bad experiences that they had with organized religion. Mm -hmm. I, I very much understand that. Things that uh, I mean, since I don't have a religious background, I don't have, I never had bad experiences with organized religion, simply because I didn't have any experiences with organized religion. You see what I mean? So uh, sounds like kind of paradoxical thing that the fact that I don't come from a religious background uh, allows me to take religious to take religion seriously now. Okay. You see what I mean? Uh, I do. Now, you've described yourself, I think, uh, as a theist, which surprises me. I still don't understand. I mean, I think of a theist as someone uh, who believes that, you know, uh, the universe is in some sense a product of some intelligence out there um, that created it. And I haven't heard you say anything that would necessarily indicate that. So in what sense are you a theist? No, I'm going to get into that. Okay. Uh, so, okay. so I was uh, uh, discussing the Mormon Transhumanist Association. I want to mention that there is a much more recent uh, Christian Transhumanist Association which was uh, established a couple of years ago. And uh, it's very interesting because, you know, in uh, Mormonism there are some very evident parallels with uh, transhumanism that come from the fact that uh, the Mormon uh, God uh, is... N mm, I mean, you don't have to call him a supernatural God. Because you can interpret the Mormon God as uh, a very advanced being that has emerged uh, uh, naturally from the universe. I am uh, very careful with the wording because I want to say things in a way that both my friends in the Mormon Transhumanist Association and the Mormon Community community at large wouldn't strongly disagree with. So in some sense, uh, 
The concept of God in Mormonism is a natural concept of God. Is something, of course, much more powerful than us. Who has achieved uh, godhood through natural means, including science and technology. That's something that you can read very clearly in some of the Mormon uh, scriptures. And even more than that, uh, the founders of Mormonism themselves, Joseph Smith himself, said that uh, we ourselves have a potential to become like God in the future, and what God wants is for us to become like him, hmm. which is an extremely powerful concept, I think, mm -hmm. and is a very transhumanist one, is really the foundation of religious transhumanism. Now, yeah. do you find the same things in mainstream Christianity? Question mark. Most people would answer no. But as a matter of fact, uh, the folks in the Christian Transhumanist Association can give you a lot of examples from the scriptures that seem to imply that the answer should be yes. As a matter of fact, uh, you can interpret uh, Christianity that way. I wrote an article a few months ago called uh, Christianity and the Transhumanism are more similar than you think. Um, it is a meaningful interpretation of Christianity, one in which uh, uh, God wants uh, humans to help and assist in his work to remake the universe and resurrect the dead. And you can think that what God wants is for these things to happen through human agency, we would be doing God's work on behalf of God, mm -hmm. including remaking the universe and resurrecting the dead, is not a very widely held interpretation of Christianity. And, uh, you know, many people would say that what I'm just saying is a very heretic uh, proposition, but is not incompatible with at least some of the Christian scriptures, and in fact, there are a lot of Christian theologians uh, whose uh, uh, works uh, you can really read in that way. I could mention uh, Wolfhard Pannenberg or John Polkenhorn. Uh, you know, they all oh. said uh, things uh, kind of comparable. They did not exactly say the same things uh, that I'm saying. I don't want to put words in their mouth. But I think what I just said is compatible with uh, things that have been written by leading and very respected Christian theologians. Well, I think, uh, I may be wrong, but I think it was Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the Jesuit mystic, uh, who had a view of evolution as teleological, uh, who I, I think is the one who famously said that God is less in the alpha than the omega, meaning more in the process of becoming, I guess. Yes. Uh, the... the um, but, of course, this idea that God wants us to do anything, I mean, that would be an act of faith. You're not saying that that's something you're led to on scientific grounds. The idea that there could be a God out there. I mean, I guess you're saying, for one thing, that's a way Christians might fuse their worldview with, with yours. 
but for you to posit that would would be on the basis of a kind of a faith or a kind of conjecture, right? It's not something you're saying science leads you to. Mm, yes, but not entirely. Uh, in fact, uh, let's uh, go back to what I mean by being a theist. So I don't start with a supernatural concept. Mm, I don't uh, find supernatural in books, but uh, I find uh, a lot of amazing things in science, in physics. Now, what's, uh, I mean, I'm really thinking a lot because what I'm going to say now is the content of an essay that I'm writing, but I haven't been, I haven't written it uh, yet. So, uh, I, may sign, I may sound incoherent, but just bear with me a moment. The fabric of reality is a quantum substrate with, you know, virtual particles and things and the physics of the quantum vacuum. I mean, reality is like a very turbulency. A lot of things happen that we do not see. You know that the concept of uh, the quantum vacuum is not a place uh, where nothing happens, because in the vacuum a lot of things happen. There are virtual particles coming to existence all the way. In some interpretation of quantum physics, the quantum vacuum itself is what uh, plays the role of uh, a medium in which uh, the, uh, what will happen to a particle is determined. So the and the, uh, the uncertainty of uh, the future of the quantum particle is actually resolved by processes that happens non-locally in the quantum vacuum. So we do live in a place which is uh, uh, very much alive, perhaps in a sense stronger than biology. So perhaps, and then thinking aloud, um, it's possible for consciousness and intelligence to arise spontaneously from uh, quantum fluctuations into the fabric of reality itself. Something that happens before biology. Thinks of uh, a bi biological-like evolution but implemented in fundamental physics. There are some scientific theories that posit that something like that actually happens. So let's imagine a universe in which some kind of quantum intelligence emerges spontaneously from the fabric of fundamental physics. And now a sort of Darwinian type of evolution starts. Did you say a divine kind of evolution? No, uh, uh, Darwin, like of evolution. Oh, oh Darwinian yeah, evolution. Darwinian okay. kind of evolution. I mean, there are uh, forms of life that uh, spontaneously arise in the fabric of reality, but we are talking of things that go at the speed of light, not of the speed of biochemistry, so we can imagine that the evolution is very fast. And we can imagine that at some point in the universe exists something which we could only call a god, because he has such a degree of control over what happens in space-time, that is something that we, 
we couldn't even begin to imagine. Well, uh, Richard Dawkins himself said something like that. You know that. He cannot rule out the possibility of extremely advanced intelligence in the universe. I'm talking now of uh, the same concept, but before even the emergence of biological life. Mm -hmm. So at some point in the universe, there is something which is de facto a god, because it can do so many things that from our point of view, it's really omnipotent. Now, suppose that these uh, advanced uh, beings uh, facilitate somehow the emergence of uh, biological life. It's not even important to assume that they do facilitate the process. It could happen spontaneously also as a parallel process. So now we have, uh, am I making any sense? I'm following you so far, yeah. Uh, so at this point, you have uh, biological life in a universe where there is a god. And I'm not talking of a god in the traditional religious sense, more like the sense that you give to the word god in your book. Like, you know, a fundamental principle that... Uh, uh, drives the evolution of the universe that can be considered as being intelligent in some sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so you have, on the one hand, a god who lives in the fabric of reality itself, and on the other hand, we have uh, you and I, and all people like us. Mm. We at something that happens in God universe. Now, at this point, uh, God is not uh, an anthropomorphized God yet. It's uh, still something, how to say, other. We cannot, I mean, something that uh, we cannot relate to that kind of God yet. The key word is yet. So, this God is still uh, very much like uh, a your kind of God, not like the Christian God. But what if God interacts with us? There is a wonderful science fiction novel by Olaf Stapledon, uh, Star Maker. Did you read? No. Star Maker. Very highly recommended. In this book, uh, there is uh, a fictional representation with uh, a very interesting uh, concept that interacting with the created world can change uh, God himself. He can uh, learn from us in a fundamental sense. Hmm. That's a concept that you can also find, uh, for example, in the process philosophy of uh, a Whitehead. Mm -hmm. Albert North Whitehead. It's a, um, you know, a feedback loop between God and us. It's not only that God tells us what to do, God can learn new things mm -hmm. by examining us. Uh, and actually, it's easy to explain this concept. If we go back to the idea of George uh, Berkeley of uh, you and I being thoughts in the mind of God. Right, idealism, yeah. Right. Uh, now, if you think something that does change you, sometimes in very uh, deep ways, doesn't it? Having a, a new thought 
thinking of something that you had not thought before, mm-hmm. I think that can have an extremely strong impact on your life, can uh, make you become a different person from one day to the next. You think something new and then you find it intriguing, then you find uh, start thinking similar things and maybe interacting with people who think these ideas, you can become a different person as a result of a process like this. Now, what if God learns to be a human-like God by interacting with us? Question mark. I think that could be a possibility. And in this sense, I mean, a God that emerges from the fabric of reality without uh, having any human readable aspects can learn how to be readable from humans by interacting with us. Hmm. I think so, so, very... so the God would figure out how to become visible, yes. I don't know if visible is the word, but uh, would figure out how to make his or her or its presence known. Not only that, but uh, you know, also the uh, maybe the simplest thing we can do now is to go back to talking about uh, dogs, okay. right? Now, uh, I can still speak of my dog because I still have another dog who is laying here in the bed. It's called Ricky, and uh, you know, I'm much smarter than Rick. <laughs> um, I hope. So. I can, no, I can. I, so. I can confirm that. I've, I've known dogs. I have dogs. You are smarter than a dog. Yes. Yeah, I'm uh, definitely smarter than a dog, but that does not mean that I cannot communicate with my dog. And that does not mean that my dog cannot understand me. My dog uh, definitely, I mean, he's listening to us, but he definitely doesn't understand. But, uh, I mean, if I want to communicate with him in ways that he can understand that I know how to do that, you know how to do that, everyone who has a dog can. I mean, we play, I can hug him and things and feed him and take him out. I can behave like a big dog to him. In fact, uh, I mean, all um, he, do- he doesn't understand my human aspects, but he does understand my a dogish aspects when I choose to manifest those dogish aspects to him. I think it's a fairly good description. But uh, what if in the universe there is the kind of God that I was described, something that starts impersonal but learns how to become uh, a personal God after interacting with us? And what if uh, this God uh, chooses to have uh, a relation and an interaction with us similar to uh, what I just described uh, described happening between me and my dog. Uh, I have to ask that again. Am I, am I making sense or not? Yeah, in a, in a, in a, in a vague way that it would, it would take me a long time to sketch out probably precisely, but I, I, I get the, the basic yeah, the basic idea. It's a, you know, a, a non-anthropomorphic god uh, is in some sense behind things and behind the, in some sense, creation of our reality and ongoing evolution of our 
reality, but it's through a kind of interaction between us and this thing or this force, whatever you want to call it, that the thing figures out how to <coughs> provide clearer evidence of its existence or something. Is that figures out how to um, how to interact with us, right? So, the, so, so that the, so that. in this scenario, it, uh, divinity would become more manifest in the future, more conspicuous. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily. Divinity would acquire an aspect that is uh, uh, readable by humans. That's how I'm formulating the idea in my mind now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is, you know, we've gone... Uh, I mean, if we go back to your book, it's called The Evolution of God. Uh-huh. Of course, with the title of the book, you mean something different. I mean, I mean the evolution of the, the idea The evolution of, of the concept right. of God right. in human... Uh, in the human mind, yeah. But, uh, you know, what if we could... Uh, Think of the evolution of God in a literal way. Mm-hmm. A God who starts without knowing anything about us, then finding out that we appear in the universe, learning things about us, and uh, mm, becoming a different God, a more human God after interacting with us. You know, the thing is that. Uh, uh, I see your image frozen. I hope you're still hearing me. Uh, yeah, I'm still hearing you. That, that may happen. Yours has frozen a couple of times, but it's the, the audio oh, okay. tends to continue. Uh, right. Um, oh, I think nothing that you cannot solve, I guess. Okay. Uh, um, I mean, they, um, I think I need to make a, a bridge between different things that that have been mentioning that do not connect at this moment. I mean, in the first half an hour, we have only discussed what we will do technologically in the future. Uh, Now I'm talking about a god that exists maybe above space-time in some weird uh, quantum uh, aspect of reality, how these things connect. But I think the connection is simple. If we learn how to be always more a godlike in the sense of having uh, a lot of abilities in our future scientific evolution i cannot rule out the possibility that sooner or later we will uh, learn how to have more and more interaction with these uh, yet unseen aspects of the universe that we are uh, referring to as God. And this is the connection. I mean, there are two separate uh, uh, threads that will stay separate for quite some time, I think, but they may well come together at a certain point. And at that point, my technological speculation and my theological speculation may well converge. Okay, well, let's... Let's hope we're around to see it, or else get resurrected <laughs> to see it. The uh, l- let me uh, say we're, we're we've, uh, gone well, we've gone well over our usual. Sorry, time. Bob, and uh, one more, just one sure. more thing. Going back to resurrection, uh, because suppose this uh, thing that we are calling uh, uh, God 
is the only thing that you can uh, really resurrect humans. I mean, we are talking of extremely super sophisticated quantum mm. technologies that may take millions of years uh, to develop. Maybe only God can do that. The question becomes why should God want to do that? And uh, uh, I mean, to the end of your book, that you say that perhaps God is love. I think uh, there is no necessary a priori reason for which God must be love. I mean, why shouldn't God be hate? But there is one reason that God learns how to love because we love. And one of the human aspects that a natural God may acquire is love. If that happens, then God could resurrect us by, uh, because of love. Okay. Well, that's a good note uh, to end on. Thank you. As I said, we've gone longer than we usually do because uh, what you have to say is very interesting. I, I do want to, in closing, mention again what you call the Turing Church, uh, which I assume is named after the famous British uh, computer scientist who who cracked the uh, the German code during World War II and invented a, a computer called the Turing machine. The um, and I want to read a couple of things you've said about the church. First of all, you say it it uh, you've written it's open and extensible, defined by coarsely defined and deliberately fuzzy core ideas without yes. central authorities, without an official doctrine, with as many non-official interpretations as needed for our happiness and well-being. If you don't like what I say, say it better. If you don't like what I do, do it better. If you want leadership, lead. Uh, elsewhere you say, I will not be a guru or a leader. Leaders must be young, strong, beautiful, and charismatic, and I am none of that. Yes. <laughs> I will act as an organizer, find other organizers, and launch the touring church uh, well, you know, I know it's challenging to organize people around any set of ideas, uh, and uh, and uh, so I wish you well. Uh, but people can Google this that write the tour. I mean, there is like a Facebook group. There, there are places they can interact with you if they want. Right? If yes. Just, okay. So good. Well, thank you. Uh, th thank you so much, Julio. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you very much for listening to me, to listening to these very half-baked ideas. I do promise to put everything in written form and be perhaps a bit more understandable. And I think I should apologize for uh, making this uh, brain dump on you. Brain dump? Is that the opposite perhaps, of a mind upload, a brain dump? Uh, <laughs> Uh, mind the download. Yeah, okay. Uh, no, I've enjoyed it, and and uh, now we will we'll put this up. Uh, I don't know when, within uh, probably a few days a week, and then we will proceed to watch some of the commenters behave as you predicted they would, for better or worse. Okay. Well, I look forward to participating in the comments. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Bob. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.